1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very, very much for being with me today. I just finished talking with Jan Kiley and Brooks Jessup about their new edited volume, Recovering Buddhism in Modern China. This came out in 2016, just this year, with the Columbia University Press. Now, what you'll hear us talking about in the hour to come includes attention to the gathering that produced the volume, um, the transformation from a kind of conference gathering to um, the book that we are talking about today, but also some of the major themes that animate the contributions to the volume that also motivate um, some of the, I think, really important historiographical work that the volume does. So among those themes, you'll hear us talking about the significance of integrating a closer and more careful, but also more expansive attention to the significance of religious practice and religious life, to um, modern China, to the making of the modern Chinese state, to urban life um, as an aspect of that, to how we understand local history, and much, much more. You'll also hear us talk about um, the importance of social communities to that process, um, especially when I talk with Jan, you'll hear us talking about uh, the significance of particular kinds of archival discoveries and archival records uh, to shaping the kinds of stories that we can tell about all of these things and their implications. So this is very much a volume that is devoted to, among other things, opening up how we think about the relationships between religion, um, modernity, history, China, and everything um, in between. So I think it's a really fascinating volume. We just barely scratched the surface of what you'll find when you actually pick up a copy and explore it for yourself. But this should hopefully give you a sense of some of what you'll find there. So it's a quite extensive interview. So I'll leave it there and let you get right to it. Um, And just to say thank you for listening, for the support of the channel that that constitutes, and I hope you enjoy. I definitely did. I'm here today to talk with Jan Kiley and Brooks Jessup about their new edited volume, Recovering Buddhism in Modern China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Jan and Brooks. Thank you so much, um, not just for writing a really interesting and I think important volume and for being here with me to talk about it today, but also for navigating many time zones in the process. I really appreciate it. And welcome to the podcast, both of you.
0: Thanks a lot, Carla. Thank you so much, Carla.
1: So let's start with the traditional question of the channel. How did you each come to work on China, and why Buddhism in China specifically? And Brooks, maybe we can start with you.
0: Um, Okay. Well, uh, for me, actually, uh, the Buddhism came before the China. Um, I was a religious studies major as an undergraduate. Um, And uh, when I was looking for study abroad programs... I was interested in a program that's uh, involved uh, sort of practice um, as well as sort of classroom instruction. And the program that's uh, that I came across that I became interested in was a Buddhist studies program in India. Um, and so my interest in Buddhism kind of grew out of that uh, the Antioch Buddhist studies program in Bodh Gaya. Um, and then after that sort of coming to China, um, I have to give credit to uh, Tom Wilson, um, who was uh, a, a teacher of mine when I was an undergraduate, um, who uh, basically really challenged my sort of whole approach to thinking about, about religion and thinking about uh, Buddhism as well, um, which had been in sort of a comparative religion mode, uh, challenging that with a more historical approach. Um, and uh, I found this uh, not only challenging, but uh, really sort of a fascinating different way to look at religion. And so I ended up in a lot of his classes. Um, and he basically converted me not only to looking at China, but also to, uh, to history as a discipline. Um, and so that's really where, where it all started for me.
1: And Brooks, what are you typically working on when you're not editing volumes about Buddhism in modern China? <laughs>
0: Um, well, uh, so this is, this project is, is, is related to, uh, a monograph project that came out of my, uh, dissertation as well. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's focused on, uh, Buddhist activism in Shanghai, uh, from for basically the first half of the 20th century in the Republican era, um, and so, uh, this volume um, is something that, for me, was really uh, sort of came out of the the interests um, and insights from that from that larger project. Um, and uh, yeah, and in addition to that, there's also, of course, uh, teaching and other kinds of, of uh, fun responsibilities as well. <laughs> of
1: course. Thank you so much. And we'll talk a little bit um, about that work when we talk about your single-authored contribution to the volume in a little bit. So, Jan, same question for you. How did you come to work on China, and why Buddhism specifically?
2: So, complete uh, reverse. I (laughs) got into China very young as a teenager. Um, My parents went to China when I was in 1982. I went to Chengdu and went to school as a high school student. Um, That's how I got into China. I've never sort of gotten out of it since then. Uh, But I was very, very resistant uh, to uh, not only Buddhism, but to religion, to studying religion. And for me, it was really an epiphany in the archives, which Birx knows about where, um, and that's why I've I've actually gotten so into this project, um, where I was so convinced that the archives must be wrong because I couldn't believe that the Buddhists were as influential as they were saying. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it was by finally realizing that the evidence was just uh, piling up against my own prejudices that I realized that uh, this was something really important that had been overlooked. And that's what has brought me into it.
1: Great. And we'll talk also about the importance of archival findings when we talk about your single authored contribution to the volume. So Jan, yeah, similar to what I asked Brooks, when you're not um, editing volumes or talking at one in the morning your time with a podcaster um, who's keeping you up way past um, any normal human bedtime, what are you typically working on
2: well i've I've done some so my first book was on thought reform in the prison, and um, I've been working a lot on religion recently. Uh, but actually, I think, as I told Brooks, I really think his book is so important. I I sort of don't feel I have to write my own book now <laughs> on Buddhism. Um, I, I'm going to do a few more pieces that I have planned out on on Buddhism. But I'm now uh, part of a um, local history, comparative local history project on the 20th century uh, that uses uh, the historical anthropology technique. Um, so I'm working here with uh, David Forr and John Lockerway. few other scholars Mm -hmm. we have an uh, 18 member international team (laughs) and uh, my own project is centered in um, in northern Jiangsu and uh, uh, I've never really done I've I've lived a lot in China so I should have been formally done field work but as a archivally trained historian I'm now trying to combine a documentary study with um, with field work and so I've been doing a lot of field work up in that part of China and um it's still in a very early state, but I'm I'm finding out a lot of interesting things. It's been fun. Great.
1: So Let's talk about the genesis of the volume. Um, you both talk early on in the volume about a workshop at the Chinese University of Hong Kong in May 2012 that um, kind of gave birth to what eventually became the volume. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. Perhaps, Brooks, um, we can start with you. How did your involvement in that workshop come about? And can you tell us a little bit about um, whatever was notable about that process before you moved to actually putting the volume together?
0: Sure um, yeah, the workshop was was wonderful and I think um, so it, it was the idea was initiated by by Jan so I think he'll have a lot more to say about that as well um, and uh, as Jan was just uh, describing I mean in his in his earlier work um, the sort of discovery of Buddhists in the archives um, that when I had when I when I read that chapter of his uh, dissertation, it was very um, inspiring for for me as well. Um, and so I, I had met Jan when I was doing uh, my field research in Shanghai. And um, so he he contacted me about the possibility of doing this this conference. Um, and so uh, for me, it was like, it was just very exciting to sort of. Be along for the ride and do what uh, sort of learn from uh, from Jan actually in figuring out how to how to put this together and how to move it through the different stages um, that a conference organization needs to needs to go through. And so um, I thought that the the actual workshop itself was was great. I mean, one of the ideas that uh, that we'd had was to um, because sort of one of the aims of of the project from the beginning um was to uh, help this emerging scholarship uh, on Buddhism in the in the modern period speak to a broader uh, a broader audience and more specifically to um, sort of historians um, in the broader field of modern Chinese history. Um, we had invited uh, a number of uh, scholars who don't necessarily work on work on Buddhism to participate and to comment on the different papers, and I thought that that was uh, a really um, excellent way to sort of uh, bring the conversation in directions that really, I think, helped Jan and I in, in, in sort of thinking about what how to sort of shape the volume that came out of the conference afterwards. Um, Yeah. And the, uh, the whole, the whole setting and the whole setup in Hong Kong at the Chinese university of Hong Kong was, uh, was also just a great place for everyone to get together.
2: Um, it was, it was a great experience.
1: Jan, did you want to add anything to that?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it really started with, um, just about the time that I met Brooks. So Brooks and I both, both were at the uh, history uh, graduate program, Berkeley, but, but, quite far apart in time so i just uh, had heard about his work right around the time that i was starting to move into in fact right at the time that i was starting to do uh, the archival work for this chapter in this book um i heard about brooks's work from our professors um at berkeley and um so then i was able to meet him and i was you know i, I don't want to Overly gush about Brooks here, but I, it was really exciting. Honestly, I mean, I was still you a know, young assistant professor trying to find my way through a topic, and uh, it was great to meet somebody who knew what I was talking about and um, and who had really been doing some terrific uh, work in the archives on it. Uh, so it was an immediate. I remember we went just had Brooks. What was it? It was like a lunch or something. Anyway, yeah, Shenbao uh, Building it was it was just very it's just a lot of fun to talk to people who really get your obscure fascinations and um so that was terrific and i realized i'd met somebody who uh, i should really stay in contact with there was a few other a few other scholars that i knew uh, the other one that was very significant to my idea here was a scholar named shui who's also in the volume uh, who's a fascinating figure who is a former monk and very very connected in um in uh, Chinese Buddhism, um, has uh, been trained in various uh, seminaries and also in the U.S. as a historian. Um, and so we'd done a AAS panel in, I think it was 2007, and we wanted Brooks to come to that. And, and we were sort of getting the ideas together. I, I I thought something was starting to happen, especially in the Chinese scholarship uh, at the time. And all of us, of course, could talk about Holmes Welch, who was kind of hanging over all of us as the source that everyone back went back to in English. but with a strong sense that something more had to be had to be done. Um, and then I got waylaid for three years to, I uh, go to Nanjing to be co-director of the Hopkins Nanjing center. So I just couldn't do really almost anything in that three year period. Um, though I, I, think I kept in some touch with Brooks. I can't, I don't know if you remember, but, um, when I got to, uh, here to CUHK, um, I, I, very early on, um, realized this is something I wanted to get back to. And of course, I is my colleague here. So, uh, we were we were talking about this all the time, and um, when we finally got the grant money and got ourselves organized and, and everything, that was terrific to uh, try to figure out how to do it. And um, uh, immediately, of course, I contacted Brooks, and uh, what was really important for me and what I think is uh, terrific about this, not only is there a certain amount of uh, very important uh, scholarship going on in China and Taiwan, and Brooks was completely on top of this. Uh, but Brooks had a great network of younger uh, international scholars uh, that he knew and immediately uh, sort of opened my mind to their work. Mostly it was in the stage of dissertations and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I really wanted to get that group uh, together. And of course, there are other people we'd hope to get involved as well. I mean, we were all really influenced by Rell Bern at, at Santa Cruz. He was a t- tremendous figure in this field. And, uh, had kind of, um, uh, actually had known many of these monks that we talk about and, uh, uh, had, had arrived in China early enough to tap into a lot of what was left over from the Republican period. Um, unfortunately he, he was unable to, to attend, but otherwise I thought we, uh, we got together a terrific group. And, uh, for me, I, I'm not sure how everybody else feels. I, uh, I, I, um. I think doing these types of conferences where everybody's coming together for a purpose, but uh, we all came, as you can see from the volume itself, we're we're from all over the map. And uh, disciplinarily, what we're actually looking at our approaches to research, uh, theoretically everything, and throwing that particular uh, salad together for me was was terrific fun because we also uh, knew enough about the same sort of things uh, that we could have great conversations, but I was learning throughout it. Uh, So for me, it's been, um, it it was a great experience.
1: Now, it can be um, as exciting as it is to bring such a diverse array of people together into a common conversation. That can also be a challenge when you're actually moving to um, editing the volume itself, right? Um, But this worked out really, really well. And so how did, let's talk a little bit about that process. How did um, the process of actually collaborating on compiling and editing the volume together um, how did you make that work? Was there anything notable about that process or sort of anything you'd want to share about um, really the practicalities of how you went from a collection of conference papers to the volume that we're talking about? And um, perhaps, Brooks, will move to you first.
0: Sure. Um, well, uh, again, I, I mean, I, I was, I think that, um, So in this process, I was really kind of following Jan's Jan's lead. Um, Jan has a lot of experience in in these kinds of projects before, which was proved invaluable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I mean, I guess we had... uh, So one of the things we did was we we got together right away uh, while I was still in Hong Kong, um, right after the conference to sort of uh, hash through some of our ideas. And that was one of the best... That was one of the best sessions, I think, Jan. That was a a really productive uh, conversation. We were really charged up after the the conference. And um, I thought that a lot of sort of good insights that went into the introduction sort of came up there. Um, The uh, sort of notable aspects, I guess, um, well, I think one of the things, so we were trying to bridge a few, uh, a few sort of artificial divides um, in this emerging subfield, um, and one was to bridge, as I sort of mentioned before, um, what's sort of always been a question for me in in, in my own work, and um, and that is sort of uh, and as 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 Jan was was mentioning earlier as well, sort of how to bring out uh, this topic of Buddhism in such a way. Um, that although you know we obviously think it's important for a number for many different reasons, um, to how do we bring that to uh, sort of a broader audience outside of religious studies? So that was one of the sorts of things that we were thinking about, and the other, um, another one uh, for me was that uh, to bridge the divide between uh, sort of the study of contemporary uh, contemporary period and um, and what. Where Jan and I focus in the early 20th century, although Jan's work has moved across the 49 divide uh, recently. But um, to sort of bridge the contemporary uh, scholarship with that of the early 20th century um, was was also something we were trying to think about. So, I mean, that, that just came up in terms of titling. I mean, we, we originally had, we were originally thinking about 20th century. Uh, the 20th century, we realized this, no, we can't, we can't do, it would have to be a very long 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of thinking, rethinking sort of how we periodize this and, um, and all the rest kind of went into that, went into that process. Um, so I think one of the, one of the, uh, one of our main focuses was to try to get each of the pieces, which were uh, sort of coming from different sides of this divide to speak uh, to speak to broader audiences um, and to speak across disciplinary and temporal uh, or periodization divides. Um, And so one aspect or sort of notable aspect of the revision process had to do with kind of making suggestions and going back and forth with everyone on those kinds of questions.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is there anything you'd like to add here about uh, kind of what you felt was notable or important about the process for you?
2: Sure I mean i I think um, oh, Brooks is being a little too kind i mean i, I don 't have that much <laughs> don 't have that much experience with this i have been on the uh, the writing end in, in some volumes and i have been part of a big project uh, modern chinese religion um, two volume series that I was doing almost around the same time mm-hmm. uh, but uh, uh, you know it's these are difficult actually projects, but I felt extremely fortunate. Um, not to kind of extend the sense of the bromance here, but I I think.
1: People, <laughs> oh, extend it. <laughs> extend it. We love bromance on the podcast.
2: You know, I, no, I just, I, I I, think it was just uh, really terrific uh, to work with Brooks. I mean, I actually hadn't really fully figured out in the early stages how, how I was going to do this. And it was just, um, I think we complimented each other pretty well. I probably drove him pretty crazy at times. But um, for me, the best part of it was always. Um, in fact, Bruce has covered a lot of it now, but it—it it was just the the long conversations that we got to have about all this, um, not just at the workshop, but then what rolled out of it. And uh, many of our long distance uh, Skype calls would—we were supposed to do something very practical, but we'd end up getting into some big conversation about <laughs> some <laughs> thing, some topic. And and for me, that you know, that's great fun, and and I I learned a lot. So it's, it's very very interesting, and um, and it's a very valuable part of this whole exercise to me uh you know to be totally honest here uh doing these uh volumes i think is really painstaking and hard work and uh, well, brooks has heard me complain about it enough I, I just think it's, it's it requires a lot of detail oriented work i'm sure i'm sure you know this yourself and um and it's a very long road and um and working uh scholars often at least in my case are I think most of us um, can be very individual and have our own ways of doing things and and our, our own sense of how everything should be and and there has to be a lot of give and take. Um so I I don't think it's always easy <laughs> to 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 produce it. Uh but but I was very glad that I was I was able to be part of this project.
1: So let's actually get into it. Um and I'll take us through some of what's happening here in the introduction. So early in the introduction, you both mentioned that Buddhism and Buddhists played important roles in, and this is in the words of the book, modern transformations of China's 20th century, and this continues today. Now at the same time, history scholarship has, at least relatively speaking, kind of neglected to pay attention to the important roles of Buddhism in these transformations. Um, So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, how you both feel about why that is, right? Why has um, there been this relative neglect and why is that changing now? Because um, I think we see also that change happening across um, many different subfields right now of East Asian studies and Chinese studies. So let's talk a little bit about that. So broadly, um, why the neglect and why is that changing now? Um, and Brooks, uh, perhaps we'll start with you. What is your sense of this?
0: Well, I, I, think, there are, I think there are a lot of reasons. I um, so, and the one that uh, so one of the reasons that that we focus on in the introduction a bit um, has to do with uh, the fact that uh, the Cultural Revolution mm-hmm. happened, right? Mm-hmm. And so there, that um, it was, you know, it, it was fairly it uh, was fairly common view that China was. Um, if not the one of the most uh, secular nations right in, in, in the world, uh, coming out of the cultural revolution, there was that kind of an idea. And so, um, if you're um, if you're sort of to the extent that uh, particularly history of the modern period, um, it needs to explain sort of where we end up that sort of presentist uh, bias in modern history, then. Um, you know, religion and in general and Buddhism in particular, uh, doesn't really take you that far in in terms of explaining uh, sort of where you end up with, with the most secular nation in the world. So I think that um, right in, in, in in that earlier period it was uh in the 80s and perhaps even into the 90s that still had an effect because what's happened is um is obviously the changes sort of on the ground in terms of uh you know what's referred to as religious revival um and all its many guises um in uh in the in the PRC of course but then also the explosion of uh, you know, Buddhist organizations in in Taiwan since the mid '80s, um, and also Hong Kong as well. That that has led to a lot of scholarly interest that I think just wasn't there uh, wasn't there earlier. And so there's been sort of a process of rediscovery of what happened, right? Particularly before '49, um, how that links up with what's going on today. So I think there's that. Um, I think there's also, uh, related to that is, is the fact that, um, uh, you know, some of the earlier paradigms with which we, we thought about, you know, modern Chinese history, whether it was sort of a revolutionary paradigm or a more sort of Weberian modernization paradigm that, uh, those kinds of approaches were, uh, you know, sort of inherently, um, you know built into that was were sort of secular assumptions that also sort of left religion on the side so i think I think those are those are some of the some of the reasons um although i, I think you could probably talk about more and perhaps Jan has some other ideas as well.
1: Um, And I'll just highlight before we turn to Jan that um, one of the things that you just mentioned is a kind of revivalism. And this is, in fact, one of the main themes that the introduction talks about um, in terms of highlighting some of the major contributions of the volume as a whole and of its contents. That is um, the importance of rethinking Buddhist revivalism and specifically revivalist projects of clerics and laity that helped make Chinese religion um, and Buddhism in particular more legible to the modern state. And we'll talk a little bit more about the significance of Buddhism for understanding the state and the modern state in particular in China um, in a little bit. But, Yan, um, how about you? For you, um, can, we, can you speak to this? Why the neglect of Chinese Buddhism in scholarship on modern China, and why is that changing? Yeah, anything um, that you'd want to add here?
2: Yeah, uh, so as, as, my, as I started out with at the very beginning, where I was just so surprised, um, I think having studied with you know, a lot of uh, very significant scholars in the field, from Ying Shui to uh, Jonathan Spence and Frederick Wakeman and so forth, uh that I was being so surprised by what I was seeing and that I was so expecting it not to be significant uh says a lot about uh, not only the historiography, but the types of sources that uh we were exposed to and, um and that were available for a long time. And a lot of this has to do with not only what Brooks has been talking about, but um longer standing trends going back to the early 20th century and all uh, various types of uh, secularism and the, of Chinese nation state construction and uh, May fourth uh, secularism and uh, nationalist party efforts and so on, communist party efforts early on. Um, and so all of this combined to not only create a situation where um, even the earliest uh, works trying to uh, recognize the significance of religion, just any kind of religion uh, to um, major as any kind of major force in twentieth century, uh, China was also, you know, relatively thin in its its content, and that has only begun to change in the last ten years. And I really think in kind of the exactly the period that we were beginning to think about this, then there was a lot of work that was uh, beginning to come together, uh, but very little about Buddhism. So, you know, one thing that really motivates me in a project is when I find something I can't find any explanation for. I can't, can't see anywhere that anyone's written about it. So, uh, I really want to dig more more into it. And that, that's exactly uh, what happened in this case.
1: So, yeah, let's stay with you and talk about, uh, some of the other, or I'll just mention maybe one other important theme that the introduction of the book brings out, um, that links a lot of this work together. So we've talked about the importance of rethinking Buddhist revivalism. Um, and another key theme is, uh, the encounter of and with um Buddhist and Buddhism, with the modern state, right? And you talk about the importance early in the introduction of understanding Buddhist and Buddhism as part of larger histories of nationalism, nation building projects, and the modern state in modern China. So um do you want to speak to that? a little bit. And specifically, um, what might it be important for listeners to know about this connection between Buddhism and the modern state that might not otherwise be clear um, without the volume?
2: Well, I, I, think, um, you know, we were, we were building on a certain amount of work, mm-hmm. uh, sort of out of Rebecca Nettestop and, um, Vincent Gosar, David Palmer, that was coming out right around the time that this work was being developed. It was uh, very much um, putting the state, uh, the modern state as it was developed after 1911, particularly to some extent in the very end of the chain, um, at the center of a story of restructuring the, the definitions and categories, boundaries of what is thought of as, um, as religion itself in China and, um, creating certain normative structures, uh, for that, um, not as a complete project, but as a kind of guideline and model. And so, uh, we we're aware of this as we were going along. I think in our own work, um, we definitely see this as a, as a very fluid process. And most of us are in this project are working with, uh, many non-state actors and, and many Buddhists in society. And so their relationship to the state has, has many multiple forms. And, um, in some of my earlier work, uh, what astonished me the most was how much um, particular uh, Buddhist activists were, in one respect, taking on actual roles within major state, modernizing state institutions, which was, are very surprising. Um, in my case, looking at, at prisons, but there were many types of institutions in which, the, especially judicial institutions where um, Buddhists were very active, in fact, that is extended, and I think Brooks's book is going to bring this out more, and there's more work coming out on this, and I'm interested in this subject as well, but also, uh, for instance, um, charity, philanthropy, uh, various types of organizations that um, have a very significant role in major urban uh, civil society development um, have a strong, um, uh, not just religious flavor to them, as was recognized before, but a heavily Buddhist one in many parts of China. Um, in this period, and interact very fluidly uh, with the state, um, and are constantly interacting with the state in ways that are um, negotiations that are attempting to to achieve many kinds of results. It's not a, a simplistic sort of suppression, non-suppression mm-hmm. uh, model. It's not a, um, a just a an attempt to legitimize themselves for no other purpose. Um, They, of course, come up with their own theories for how they're working in relation with the state, but also their notion, their whole understanding of the state um, transcends many many of the kind of uh, rigid uh, structures in which one often sets up the opposition between state and society. I I don't think that's the way many of them thought, quite honestly.
1: And we'll talk more about this when we talk about your contributions specifically um, uh, in the essay form as well. But, Brooks, let's turn to you for a moment. Another one of the major themes that you both identify early on in the book is the importance of the formation of social communities and specifically the significance of lay Buddhist and lay Buddhist uh, associations. So can you speak a little bit to that, Brooks, sort of your sense of the importance of um, social communities and specifically lay Buddhist communities to the larger project that the volume is um, making clear for us?
0: Um, sure. Yeah. I, so this was one of the one of the major themes that um, they that uh, they came together when we put together the all the, all of the different uh, all of the different essays. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the major themes that, that emerged and it runs uh, you know, sort of throughout the entire throughout the book. Um, Uh, So not just in the early 20th century, but also running forward to um, to Gareth Fisher's contribution uh, for the contemporary period as well with textual communities. So the I mean, the. uh, Basically, what we found was that um, so you had uh, through the creation of um, uh, lay organizations, lay associations, as you mentioned, um, they created new kinds of urban spaces, um, but also through uh, through uh, sort of print enterprise as well, and the sort of flowering of a Buddhist print culture in the Republican era, um, which was also the basis for uh, the kind of formation of uh, new kinds of or Buddhist participation in new kinds of intellectual communities, such as um, as Eric Hammerstrom looks at in in the case of uh, science, the scientific discursive community um, in his chapter, um, that you with the, this uh, sort of Buddhist engagement with uh, sort of new technologies uh, of. Print, as well as uh, the formation of associations and assembly and new kinds of urban space that you really had um, uh, basically Buddhist participation in the kinds of processes that, um, that I think we see much more, much more broadly. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions underlying this uh, the whole project was, Um, And this is this is this is one of the questions that um, our conversations, my conversations with Jan revolved around early on, as well as with the other contributors to the volume was. So we keep seeing. um, So you have Buddhist presences in in, uh, sort of significant areas that have been discussed by other scholars. So we're discovering Buddhists in all these different places, um, print culture, scientific communities and the rest. But so can we go beyond just talking about sort of Buddhists were there too, right? To talk about sort of how this uh, adding Buddhists to the story or how the Buddhist presence um, in these uh, different areas of, uh, in this case, social community formation, um, how how does it uh, change the story in some sort of way? And so that, that was sort of what we were always kind of pushing for. Um, I think in some cases You know that conversation was more successful than other cases, but I think there are some good examples in the book of that. I think um, Eric Hamerson's chapter, for example, does a very good job of uh, showing how Buddhists bring different kinds of positions and ideas uh, in the sort of domestication of science as an idea and as an ideology um, in the Republican era. Um, And so, uh, yeah. So I think that um, that's yeah that that ended up being one of the major themes that that came out of our conversations when we put all of this different uh, scholarship together.
1: Yeah, is there anything that you wanted to add to um, this conversation specifically on the importance of social communities and um, perhaps lay Buddhist communities um, specifically?
2: Yeah, I I mean, I just for me it was such a revelation. um, It's almost as if the entire Vision that I had of places like Shanghai, and um, for instance, you know, when I was uh, a graduate student, the main focus of uh, a lot of the work that was going on among my peers and and my professors was a Shanghai-based project, a lot of work on the city of Shanghai, and terrific work, and and still state-of-the-field sort of work, and and seeing as I did my own work. Uh, that, uh, there was this entire religious dimension, especially the Buddhist dimension, uh, that was missing. It's as if you just, uh, it's as if you'd study, uh, New York City without understanding the importance of Judaism or Catholicism. I mean, uh, you would just miss so much. It would, it would seem absurd to people who, who study, uh, a place like that, that they would use, you would see it that way. So I think it's enormously, uh, significant. And it's significant not only for, uh, for a place like Shanghai, but for the entire, uh, the focus now in a lot of the research is on the Republican period, but increasingly as I'm involved in this, this work, this is going to extend, uh, to the entire 20th century. There's not going to be, um, you know, the, the so-called Maoist gap is also a period in which there was a lot of, uh, religious life. And it's, it's just because it had to be carried on in, in quietly, as you can see in, in Jones Zhang's uh, chapter, um, are people who, when they, when they could uh, go on uh, doing what they, they, they sought to do, uh, did so. And, and there's increasing evidence as more work comes out
1: of them all. So, so let's actually get into the parts of the book. The book has three parts, and the first part is called Republican-Era Modernity. So this part of the book looks at Buddhist engagement with important aspects of the emerging Chinese modernity of the early 20th century. And it has three chapters um, that Brooks has actually, I think, kind of nicely touched on already um, in, you know, uh, in brief ways that look at the ways that various types of Buddhists positioned themselves as participants in, um, in the words of the book, The Modern City, Debates About Science, and the Publishing Industry. And in doing so, it looks at how they contributed to producing important new forms of sociocultural identities, of communities, and of discourses. And Brooks, your chapter um, is actually part of this first part of the book, so let's talk briefly about this before moving on. This chapter looks specifically at something called the World Buddhist Householder Grove in early Republican Shanghai. So, for listeners who have no idea um, what this is, let's kind of start. The, <laughs> let's kind of start at the beginning and then move our way to um, something more specific. So, first, what is a householder, um, and what was this World Buddhist Householder Grove?
0: Uh, yeah, great. So, um, householder. Uh, this is uh, basically a standard translation for um, a Chinese term, sure. Uh, uh, which is one of the terms for, for lay Buddhist um, that uh, has a whole sort of complicated etymology that goes back to the translation of Buddhist scriptures. Um, but essentially, it's, it's, a, it's one of the general terms for, uh, for a lay Buddhist, a non-monastic uh, affiliated Buddhist. And um, so the householder grow. So this is basically uh, something new. Um, this, uh, this was, uh, basically the, 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 the concept, um, was that this would be a, uh, essentially, a uh, the, the person who founded it basically had taken, taken the idea that, uh, so monasteries right we're supposed to had their their historical role within buddhism uh one of their historical roles was to sort of serve as a site of propagation and so this behind this is sort of new ideas about you know what a religion is and what a religion does um but his idea was that uh, monasteries in china had given up this role um and so uh the idea was that uh, lay people Needed to take this up, right? So, created what was essentially um, a lay version of sort of what he thought that a monastery should do in terms of propagation. Um, and so, this householder grove was was kind of a new creation, new kind of Buddhist institution in the 1920s. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was lay managed. Uh, the membership was uh, was. Entirely lay, although they brought in uh, uh, they brought in sort of eminent monks uh, to give uh, lectures and to lead uh, sort of the study and discussion of scripture and for other sorts of things as well. So there was monastic involvement, but this was basically a new form of uh, lay organization uh, that emerged in Shanghai in the 1920s.
1: So in the chapter, you talk about the rise of this particular form of identity among urban elites in early 20th century Shanghai, and you talk specifically about the space of the compound of this world Buddhist householder grove. Now, you talk about this, and this I think is really interesting, and it speaks to something that you mentioned very briefly before. You talk about this being important in terms of how we understand the spatial construction of householder identity in Shanghai and more broadly the emergence of new types of urban religious space. So um, because this is something that I think is, it's pretty clear, this is a contribution not just to how we understand this particular group, but perhaps how we think about space um, and uh, an urban setting and its re- relationship to religious organizations um, more broadly. Can you talk about um, this particular aspect of the contribution, the emergence of new types of urban religious space in this context and what you take to be perhaps most important about that?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so this was, uh, this, this chapter in this chapter, um, I was really sort of revisiting, uh, this organization that I had kind of started with in my dissertation research. And, um, one of the, uh, questions that my advisor, uh, had Yeah had asked me, um, or yeah, I guess it was sort of a question. She, and ask me so. Um, yes, there's a lot of continuities in terms of what these Buddhists are doing in the 1920s and 30s in Shanghai. Um, but even if they, even if they, uh, even if they were practicing sort of similar traditions, right, to to what had come before, um, those kinds of practices must have meant something different. The Buddhist affiliation, you know, how did it mean something different and to uh, to practice? Uh, all sorts of different Buddhist rituals and traditions in the specific context of uh, early 20th century Shanghai. Um, So it was this question of meaning and identity um, that I had been grappling with and that I wanted to think through in this chapter. And the way I wanted to do that was in terms of thinking about uh, the, uh, the space that they created through the construction of these uh, of this organization in particular. Um, and so, uh, you know, like, like others, I'm not thinking about urban space, uh, solely in terms of physical space, but also in terms of the kinds of uh, practices through which individuals gave meaning to that space. And so for these, uh, particular individuals, for these lay Buddhists, um, what I found was that, uh, the practices through which they gave meaning to this organization, as sort of this urban social space, um, set up a whole series of um, uh, sort of associations and um, differentiations with other kinds of urban spaces uh, within Shanghai. And so sort of at one pole you had the kind of uh, commercial spaces on Nanjing Road symbolizing a kind of commercialized modernity. And on the other hand, you had the other pole. You had sort of the traditional Buddhist temples in the city. And um, so the, uh, uh, the the lay Buddhists in this organization had sort of constructed the space um, of the organization, the physical space, and given it meaning in reference to these uh, sort of Uh, two kind of reference points within the urban environment.
1: So the piece, um, before we move on, I'll just also mention for listeners, um, the piece also talks about uh, one of the many reasons why this particular case is important more broadly, um, and that is it becomes a model for similar associations that grow up Around China, so this becomes um, kind of something that disperses in, I think, a really interesting way. And you also talk about the fundamental ambivalence of the kind of modernity that emerges here. So there's all of that and more. Um, happening just in the first chapter of the book. Um, And that's one of many chapters. Um, Part one of the book also includes a chapter on Buddhist intellectuals in the science and philosophy of life debates. And this is something that listeners who had a chance to hear my interview with Eric Hammerstrom will kind of recognize from um, that book. And also there's a chapter on Chinese Buddhist periodicals in the early Republic by Gregory Adam Scott. Okay, but there's a whole second part of the book as well. And Jan, now we're going to, if you're still with us, um, I know it's 2 a.m. for you, you poor thing, but ah. we're going to turn to um, part two um, right now. So part two looks at the Buddhist presence in modern politics and the expansions in state power through war and revolution in the middle of the 20th century. And this chapter, or this part of the book also includes three chapters, and one of them is Jan's Contribution. This is chapter six, um, and it deals with Buddhism in Suzhou in the early PRC. So Jan, um, we've talked a little bit already about the importance of kind of discovering important archival records for you um, and how that brought you into, um, you know, a a particular kind of engagement with an excitement about the field. And this chapter very much emphasizes the importance of a particular kind of archival records from the early 1950s in um, kind of opening up. Uh, the case study here. So let's start there. Can you talk about the importance of the source base for this chapter um, and the kinds of things that that source base let you do in terms of telling this story about Buddhism and Suzhou in this period?
2: Yeah, so this was a bit bit lucky. I, I like a lot of work in, in Chinese archives. And um, it just happened to I mean, I, I did realize I, I needed to poke into some of the, the Buddhists that were, that I was interested in that were moving into to the greater Suzhou area between Suzhou and Shanghai. And I happened to run a student program in 2005 and then 2006 also in Suzhou. So I was there over extended, you know, over a term and summer and so forth. So I had the time and, and, um, the Suzhou archives at that time was also not the most of accessible archives, though it was a pretty good time and generally for the archives, especially compared to now uh, but it's just one of those fortuitous uh things where i was um, for all who work in archives or for those who don't it's it's a little bit of a of a game of of asking and looking for different types of documents that might be available in um, that time you're really looking at uh, original materials as opposed to digitized materials or microfilm. Mm-hmm. And so it's the original documents and there's um, you have to try to ask for all kinds of different types of things where uh, simply my project uh, made no sense to archivists. So it wasn't within the realm of what they were uh, trained to understand. So um, you just have to keep on thinking of ways to uh, and Brooks has worked a lot in archives, too, as well. So he knows how this this works. But the more you get away from the, the big, um, well-organized archives like um, Shanghai and so forth. Um, it's, it's a little more complex and this was just, um, very, very lucky. So, uh, one day they, they just dropped a big uh, stack of materials on my table and I realized pretty quickly what they'd done. They, they'd given me this entire campaigns, uh, set of materials and, um, I just started copying as fast as I could Um, because you don't know how long uh, you'll have access to the document. (laughs) Um, So you just have to work quickly and try to get all the information down. In that period, you weren't allowed to take uh, photographs or anything like that, and uh, photocopying was very limited. But I could see that this was a highly detailed account uh, with um, all kinds of um, charts that had been filled out by people who were supposed to report at the end of particular periods on how the project uh, was proceeding. So it was a highly precise account of, uh, in effect, the dismantling of Buddhism in the city. And, and that's a very rare bit of archival material, especially uh, for the 1950s. Um, and uh, once I had it though, uh, there's a lot of uh, challenges of course, to using archives. And I, I don't want to go into too much detail, but, uh, of course as as we all know archives show you a lot of things but they obscure a lot of things they distort certain things they um there are lots of different ways to read them and so figuring out how to uh find all the possibilities of the kinds of um stories you can see that come out of them uh takes a while and and um a significant amount of contextualization uh one thing that was clear pretty quickly is that in the there are a lot of the broad themes that Holmes Welch had sketched out, and that some Chinese writers, contemporary writers, mostly writing from Hong Kong uh, in the 1950s, had recognized mostly because these were the policy statements about religion. Mm-hmm. And um, so you could tell from uh, effectively from newspapers, uh, from people who were leaving China at the time, and then also from the Buddhist periodicals uh, that Che Yu uh, writes about. Um, You could tell those kinds of shifts. But what struck me very quickly uh, uh, by looking at the actual campaign in its process was how much was uh, happening in a very steady uh, point-by-point approach to taking apart the institution that was really unrelated to the larger uh, policy statements, the ups and downs and so forth, and the, the discussions that a lot of people have focused on in the past. Um, much of it was a uh, very straightforward, um, Marxist-Leninist, uh, uh, approach to uh, taking apart the economic, um, um basis of, of, religion because, uh, religion doesn't have a, a role, mm-hmm. uh, really within the, uh, the Marxist-Leninist view. And that was the approach. And it was, uh, very steady and very strategic. And it used uh, a certain amount of what we recognize as Maoist uh, campaign and uh, thought reform techniques and so forth. But largely it was about delegitimizing every type of economic uh, financial support um, for all Buddhist institutions step-by-step step and moving uh, all monks and nuns effectively into um, productive laboring roles or they'd have to do something else. And uh, a very notable part of these charts was that they kept recording how many people were leaving uh, the, the clergy, but there was no recording of how many people were joining the clergy. <laughs> so there was no expectation that anyone would join the clergy. Um, it was in effect, I, I thought of proving quite effectively that this was uh, not necessarily what some of the United Front um, Overt policies uh, talked about at the time, and this is an area I, I should say that is of some debate with, <laughs> with some of my friends and colleagues. But but uh, having looked at these documents, I, I feel that this one local case shows it shows it pretty well for this one location certainly. But it showed a lot more to me, and among the things that it showed is the details, if read in context, told a very particular it, it, Buddhism didn't have a general story; it, it had a very particular story in Suzhou. Uh, That wasn't necessarily uh, what we might call an ancient story, but a reconstruction story um, at the local level after the the Taiping um, wars and destruction and occupation of Suzhou in the mid-19th century. And in the uh, 1920s and 30s, by a particular uh, revivalist, pure land, monastic lay movement that was led by a master, Ying Guang, who's enormously influential still in Chinese Buddhism, and I've written more about since, and and is also very tied in with the group that that, Brooks has been writing about. But this was a a movement that was very well organized, um, had a very charismatic uh, leader, had huge numbers of very wealthy uh, elite supporters, but also massive numbers of popular uh, supporters from not only the region, but all over China and overseas Chinese communities So this was a big uh, very influential movement and one of the things that it was most effective as, as as Rebecca Nettestup had noticed About the particular monastery where they were based in the 1930s is how effective they were at working with the state mm-hmm. um, And how they negotiated so successfully uh, that relationship um, in this period And yet, simultaneously, while they represented a kind of, at one level, uh, the cutting edge of a kind of modernized Buddhism, they were, under this monk's influence, extremely tolerant of the wide range of popular uh, religious practice, uh, including many things that uh, Buddhist organizations, certain Buddhist uh, progressives, or radicals, and certainly secularists uh, would have wanted to eliminate as superstitions. Uh, so that was a whole side of the story that became clear through a lot of the details Uh, in the dismantling you could see what had been there in the past on the other side of it you could see what was left at the end and the kind of Buddhism that was in place by the end of this process especially by uh, 1954-55 I argue uh, is the state structured Buddhism that was revived in the late 1970s and as much as the uh, Reform Era Buddhism often represents itself as reconnecting to the Republican Era, um, certainly the state-structured Buddhism of the mid-1950s is the initial model that is reestablished in the late 70s and early 80s. And there's a lot of evidence if you can look at what, what that precisely looks like at the end of this campaign in the mid-1950s from the archival documents, and then what it looks like in the 1980s. You can see that. and. As I argue, of course, there have been a lot of influences since the 1980s uh, coming from outside of China within China that are not just state, as our volume shows as well, mm-hmm. but that the state imprint of the reconstruction under the United Front and the Chinese Buddhist Association, which is a is a Chinese Communist Party government uh, uh, society in effect, um, is extremely strong in in um, In establishing Buddhism in China. And I think that is still important to looking at the role of Buddhism in China today.
1: Great. Um, Thank you so much. And the chapter really emphasizes um, some of what you've already said, right? The importance of the fact that this is not a simple story about continuity of Buddhist practice Um, and Buddhism in this context. There's a lot of important change. Um, And you also emphasize the importance of the research into specific contexts, into localities, local cultures, and practices of Buddhism um, in understanding modern China. Um, And so there's a lot more that we could talk about in this chapter, um, just in this chapter, but we won't. I'm in the service of moving on and coming to our conclusion. I just want to mention for listeners that this part of the book, part two, also includes a chapter on the modern travels of a medieval monk resurrecting um, Xuanzang. This is by Benjamin Brose. And it also includes a chapter by one of the scholars um, that you've both mentioned already, um, Xue Yu, on Buddhist efforts for the reconciliation of Buddhism and Marxism in the early years of the People's Republic of China. There's also a whole third part of the book that we won't have a chance to talk about too much, Um, but this is part three, and I just want to mark this for listeners. This is a part of the book that includes two chapters that collectively offer ethnographic accounts of contemporary Buddhist practices, especially in groups that were left marginalized by economic reforms in the post-Mao era. Okay. So both of you, there's a million billion things that we could talk about, right? There's a lot more in the volume and we've, um, we've come to the end of our hour. Um, but given that, is there anything in particular that didn't come up, but that either of you would like to mention for listeners and Brooks, perhaps we'll start with you. Anything you want to get on the table that didn't come up?
2: Um,
0: let's see. I, um, I don't think so. Actually. I think we've, I think we've covered quite a lot. I mean, there's, there's, as you said, there's, there's much more, um, uh, you know, there's, there's much more in, in, in the volume, particularly in the individual chapters, but I think we've done, I, I think you did a good job and asking questions that hit the the major themes. So I will, uh, yield my time to Jan.
1: Hey, Jan, anything else that you want to get on the table that didn't come up?
2: I'd just like to add that, I, I mean, both one of the, um, limitations of the volume but also I think one of the uh, things I also feel good about is that I see it and I think bricks and I both saw this very much as just a departure mm-hmm. and some of the early uh, comments and, and reviews have also noticed this as well and uh, this is just a taste this is from my perspective this is just some of the exciting stuff that's been percolating up and we've been trying to pull it together to understand um, how, how significant it is and we believe it is so but it's really just the beginning and for my Uh, position sort of looking back on this whole project i can't wait to see all the books that are going to be produced by not only the people uh, in this volume uh, but there are lots of other people that we now know about who are who are working in this field and there's so much more new work to be done i have graduate students here who have responded to our volume and said "I, i i completely disagree with that aspect of the volume i'm going to do something else and and look for another perspective and i'll I celebrate that as well. I mean, there, this is really uh, just starting out, um, uh, excavating, and uh, there are some tremendous new materials uh, that we can look at um, that are not necessarily the, the kind of difficult archives that I was talking about. Uh, but lots of there's just such been a, such an explosion of, of documentary materials and opportunities to do field work as well. So uh, I can't wait for the next ten years to see what happens
1: so yeah let 's stay with you now that the book is out, and congratulations on the volume what 's um currently occupying you now what 's next and um, kind of what are you inspired by at the moment
2: so i've i've um really been interested in local history and uh, as I mentioned at the outset and um, i've uh, i've been doing field work um, i th- I think what 's really driving my fascination with fieldwork and specificity is my a concern as I get to be an older historian, <laughs> as, um, uh, about problems of abstraction, uh, in dealing with history and, uh, and the the comfort that we all often have as historians in, in making uh, big claims. And, um, so I think one way to, of course, it's got its own problems, but, um, I found it very rewarding to, burrow deeply into the 20th century history of a few small places, and to try to keep all these different elements that I've been interested in for quite a while uh, alive in that. And um, as I said before, it's it's just a beginning project, but uh, it includes a lot of religion, but it includes a lot of other aspects um, of local life that um, I think are also often ignored in in the big narratives, uh, but have to be put back in. And so that's what I'm working on.
1: So Brooks, what are you working on now? What's next for you now that the uh, volume is out?
0: Well, one of the things that um, that really fascinated me in uh, looking at these what these Buddhists were doing in Shanghai um, had to do with uh, their involvement in animal protection. Uh-huh. Um, it was one of the sort of biggest areas of their. Uh, civic activism in the 1930s. They poured a lot of resources into it. And um, it was, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting area because they they were sort of in a uh, frenemy kind of relationship with a a foreign group in Shanghai as well. It was also involved in animal protection. And so this was something that uh, really kind of interested me. So I've been sort of digging more into that uh, idea of, um, uh, sort of how human-animal relations, sort of opening that up a little bit and th- trying to think more about how human-animal relations were changing, um, particularly in urban environments uh, in the 20th century, and, um, and going back to that question of urban space and how uh, basically um, the uh, sort of idea of Uh, what is sort of modern urban space, what is different about the urban environment and uh, the experience of urban life has something fundamental to do with um, my relationship not only to uh, the natural world in general, but also specifically to to animals. And so animal protection is sort of part of that. Um, But then I've also sort of become interested in all these different aspects of it recently i need to figure out a way to sort of narrow it down but um you know uh sort of the modernization of uh slaughterhouses the sort of bifurcation of uh animals into uh basically pets and strays or really you know kind of vermin and all sorts of different aspects um of this changing relationship. When you start to think about it, it uh, it really kind of opens up. And for me, it's, it's fascinating. So I'm, again, like I'm sort of in the beginning stages of uh, sort of thinking, thinking through where I want to take this, but that's what I've been thinking about a bit recently.
1: Well, thanks to both of you um, for taking time out of that work to talk with me about this one. And also, again, for being so generous about navigating uh, time zones with me. It's really been a pleasure and best of luck on the work to come. Thanks for being part of the podcast.
2: Thanks very much, Carla. This was terrific. Appreciate it. Thank you, Carla.
1: You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very, very much for joining us on the podcast and we'll catch you next time.